0: Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Laurison Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. How are you, Carlos? I'm doing fine. How about you, Alberto? I'm doing good. want to welcome you to our 18th episode, if wow. you can believe that. 18 already, yeah, we're wow. on number 18. It just feels like yeah. the other day we did the first one Well, I guess we've had a driver's
1: license uh, for the past two <laughs> yeah
0: and three quarters of the way through the year so this is uh, this year being our first season of the Christian mysticism podcast of hopefully many seasons ahead of us. so we had a great episode last time with Saint Hildegard and today I think we got another good one. who do we have?
1: Well, we only pick the best, so (laughs) it's (laughs) Catherine of Siena, St. Catherine of Siena, who lived in the 14th century, born auspiciously, 1347, which is when the Black Death began to spread through the Mediterranean and then through all of Europe. Uh, The peak years were 48 and 49. So she's born in a a terrible time where, you know, in some places, as as many as one-third to half of the population perished quickly, which makes what we just went through with COVID seem like child's play. And she died young. She died in 1380 at the age of 33. What she accomplished in those 33 years is just mind-blowing. Absolutely. Uh, Especially given the time given her family situation, and given the fact that she was female. As we shall see soon enough in our conversation, she accomplished things that women normally could not accomplish.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about her early life. Well, you
1: know, she was, believe it or not, the 24th of 25 children, born to a um, cloth dyer who was affluent enough to have 25 children, and her mother was a poet. Catherine had a twin sister, who unfortunately did not live very long, died as an infant. And then Catherine grew up in a very religious household. At the age of six, she saw a vision of Christ, and from that point on, dedicated herself to all sorts of acts of self-denial, to prayer, and to good works, as many good works as a six-year-old can do, which is not many. As she grew older, of course, she became a very, very active, very actively involved in caring for the poor and the sick. And then, already we're almost halfway through her life, right, at age 16, when her married sister, older sister, of course, Bonaventura, died, her parents planned for her to marry her sister's widower her husband and it was then when she was faced with this reality that all of a sudden she was going to not be able to live the religious life that she was living at home anymore because she prayed constantly and she cut her hair and then she began a very rigorous life of extreme fasting and she locked herself in her room you can you can imagine her parents' despair over this you know in our day and age she would have probably been taken to a psychiatrist for sure or at uh, least put she, on
0: antidepressants
1: yes or any uh, some other kind of medication she simply refused to marry and cutting off her hair of course made her just immediately unable to take part in a wedding so <laughs> she also took a vow of celibacy and this Made her parents realize that there was no way that she was going to marry Bonaventura's husband or widower. And she ate very little. And of course, uh, you know, she couldn't just lock herself in her room and not go to church. She would venture out to church. But she was so weak that sometimes uh, she would pass out and would have to be carried home. And her parents, uh, I suppose, one way to say it is they supported her in this quest of hers, the spiritual quest. And it continued over four years. And at the age of 21, she had one of her major mystical experiences. I mean, she, let me back up just a second. She had been receiving visions through this whole period of extreme asceticism and intense prayer. But at the age of 21, she experienced something that was also found in the life of a, another early Christian saint, a saint and martyr, Saint Catherine of Alexandria. So, two Catharines. Catherine of Alexandria. There were still persecutions going on, but Catherine of Alexandria had had a mystical marriage with Christ, or so so read her hagiography, or you know the life of her saintliness. And like her namesake, Catherine of Alexandria, she had a wedding with Christ. And all sorts of heavenly figures uh, showed up. Of course, the Virgin Mary was there, other saints, and none other than King David from the Old Testament was there with his harp providing the, the music. And Christ put an invisible ring on her finger, and they were spiritually espoused. It's a spiritual marriage, not a carnal marriage. A spiritual marriage. And we, we can come back to that because it is one of the most important of the visions that she had. And it also represents the fact the prime characteristics of her relationship with the divine was love. She is what scholars call an affective mystic, affection, love. Love was central to her relationship with God through Christ. Right? and she was very focused on you know in her visions on the
0: human Christ very human so this mystical marriage this mystical wedding I guess in her vision it was an actual wedding ceremony with guests and music and yes yeah and and there are
1: many artistic uh, representations of, of her mystical marriage after she died of course uh, in in Siena someone commissioned an artist, Giovanni di Paolo, to paint scenes from her life. And in Giovanni di Paolo's painting of the mystical marriage of St. Catherine, it shows her standing, Christ putting the ring on her finger, and around her, above the ground. It's a cloud, a golden cloud, full of all of these saints and angels who attended her wedding. Christ places an invisible ring on her finger and says, I, your creator and savior, espouse you in the faith that you will keep ever pure until you celebrate your eternal nuptials with me in heaven. Very dramatic. Uh, And in this painting right behind Christ, Giovanni de Paolo depicts King David with his harp. (laughs) Quite a ceremony, quite a wedding. She also had another vision that's even more dramatic than this one, where uh, Christ exchanges hearts with her. So in this vision, Christ reaches in, takes out her heart. Then he also reaches into his chest, takes out his heart, puts it inside of Catherine. So he takes her heart. He gives her his heart. And, you know, one has to ask, what is this? Well, you know, unlike Hildegard of Bingen, who had very abstract visions, right, that then were drawn and then very nicely colored to represent the, the whole abstract conception of certain teachings, what Catherine ha- has in her visions are these very, very intense one-on-one experiences where she and Christ are united and united thoroughly, right? And then, as if all of this is not enough, she also receives the stigmata, just like Francis of Assisi, except in her case, they are invisible, just like the ring. What does that mean? Well, it means that she has the pain of having these wounds, but no one can see them. So once again, you know, if you pause and ask yourself, what would have happened in our day and age to this young woman if all of this was going on? And she, of course, told people about this. So it's a very different culture that we're dealing with in 14th century. And we have to keep in mind the great disruption of the Black Death, the plague, which, you know, the peak period was 1348-49, to 49, but it it kept returning. Just like now we have to deal with all the returning different versions of COVID, but this is nothing compared to her her day and age. So invisible stigmata, an invisible wedding ring, and an exchange of hearts. I always ask myself when I have to deal with, with her, especially because of her extreme fasting, right? Whether she would have been able to survive in our day and age and by survive I mean not just you know live physically but for her to be able to keep this kind of life up but I think that shows to us how how much more accepting her culture was of the otherworldly the spiritual and the supernatural than our
0: age well she, she survived the black plague yes <laughs> so I think she could survive our current, social... Oh, yeah. ...atmosphere or environment. Uh, yeah. She was strong enough to, to
1: yes, to survive. What make what I wonder about is not so much her, but, you know, her parents, the people around her being so concerned. My Lord, for, for quite some time, you know, she claimed that all that she was eating was the communion wafer. But here the, is where the story gets, her story, her life story, gets very interesting. Because... She's not only a visionary who has all these uh, encounters with the divine. After her mystical marriage with Christ, age 21, she goes out into the world. So if we pause for a second, you know, in the study of mysticism, and actually in the practice of mysticism, there's always a, a lot of tension between what gets called the passive life, contemplative life, and the active life so contemplation refers to the mystical life active life refers to being out in the world and doing things and doing these things you know the active life flows from the contemplative life in her case it is an astounding sudden explosion of activity
0: and it's sort of atypical especially when a lot of the mystics that we've talked about in previous episodes, a lot of them were monastics, kind of kept themselves secluded away from the world, very little. I mean, there were some, obviously, that, that had uh, St. Francis of Assisi and and uh, St. Teresa of Avila, but there were others that were just, they sort of tend to be in their asceticism, not only disconnect from, from food and pleasure and you know, other typical things that you do in, a, in your daily life, but also disconnecting themselves from from the world, just being totally concentrated on prayer and communion with God. Yes, and you know, there's. Um, I guess one could say that there's a sort of
1: antisocial dimension to this extreme fasting. I didn't um, want
0: to say antisocial, but yeah, no, it, but, it could be construed as antisocial <laughs> from a
1: purely sort of social scientific point of view. You know how some anthropologists or sociologists would view this kind of behavior is, well, obviously she doesn't share mealtime with people around her. So she's not only denying herself food in in a way, she's denying herself, again, this mingling with with others. But what she does after the mystical marriage with Christ is just the the opposite of antisocial behavior. She becomes a dynamo of social activity. And all of this while, you know, feeling the, not only fasting to some would say fast an extreme sort of fasting, but she has a pain from the stigmata, which she actually described to her hagiographer, the man who wrote her life, who is Raymond of Capua. And the, the English translation of Raymond of Capua's Life of Catherine is available in many different editions. So if anyone is interested in Catherine, I highly recommend that they read His Life of Catherine to, to get all the details of these very th- significant things and many others that we're covering in summary fashion, you know, without much detail. All the details are in Raymond of Capua. But here's what she had. Uh, Raymond says, as she said about her, her pain, and I'm quoting, I feel such pain at those five points, especially in my heart that if the Lord does not perform another miracle, I do not see how I can possibly go on, and within a few days, I could be dead, just from the pain. I imagine it must have been excruciating. Well, that's what other stigmatists describe. So, you know, getting the stigmata is not some kind of... uh, Well, I'm going to back up. Getting the stigmata is, is, is not just having the wounds but having the pain that comes with the wounds so one has to also ask what's with all this suffering what is this suffering accomplishing for the person who has this very rare and very painful gift and for those around this person well i think in descriptions of that i've read of you know stigmatists and what they have to say about it it's that you know this is a very very deep connection to Christ himself, and it's sharing in his suffering and offering up that suffering, not just for those immediately around you, but the whole world. In a way, it's like sharing in the redemptive work of Christ and the church community, and of those who are outside the church. I think we've touched on this before, and you know, you you can't avoid touching on it, is that these mystics, including those that don't have the, the stigmata, they see a value in suffering that our culture, our secular culture, does not appreciate in the least. As a matter of fact, they, they tend to view it as some kind of pathology, right? There's something wrong with this person. It might even uh, end up being called a, a masochist, right? But I always, uh, when I get asked this question whether in class or outside of class, I always say, well, look, in the 14th century, they didn't have very effective painkillers. If you hurt back then, actually way into the 19th century, if you hurt, you were going to hurt. There was not, you know, you couldn't take a pill or, or get a shot and disassociate yourself from your pain. So in such a culture, I, I, I say Suffering has to be infused with some kind of meaning. And in our culture, because in so many instances, one can be separated from one's pain, it's different. But as someone who has kidney stones, (laughs) I can tell you, I can tell everyone, there is nothing that can touch the pain of kidney stones. Nothing. I mean, morphine helps to make you kind of loopy and kind of be in a semi-dream state, but the pain does not go away. And boy, if that pain doesn't have meaning, it's
0: much harder to take. And with kidney stones, you're providing an extreme example, but if you think about it, just something simple, a headache. Right. Back in the 14th century, there was nothing you could do about it. You had to endure that headache, which, you know, today you, you you pop some Advil and, and it's gone in twenty minutes, or or you get some relief from it. But you know, imagine a headache, a toothache, uh, muscle pain—you, oh, I know—any you, you, of those things, a bruise, and you would have to endure the constant pain until your body healed. And it was—I don't think we really, you know, living in the comfort that we live in, in the modern era that we enjoy. Can really appreciate what life would be like with absolutely, you know, without a bottle of, of Advil in your cupboard. Oh yeah, absolutely. And um, this is where
1: you know, in the case of Catherine's life, you know, Christ comes in. Christ, her Christ, is very much a suffering Christ who takes on the suffering of the human race, who unites unites Himself to her and to the whole human race in suffering and sharing the suffering of the human race. Now, ultimately, it's a mystery, right? The fall of Adam and Eve, the pain that human beings have to endure after that fall. And it's also a mystery why after God becomes a human being in Jesus and suffers this agonizing torture and death in in his last two days, Why doesn't the pain go away? But that is one of the mysteries, right? And how does she deal with it? Uh, She accepts it. She accepts it as as a mystery. And like so many mystics, she has a poetic streak, and the pain becomes beautiful. And her texts, her language, is very full of images of
0: blood and bleeding. Before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about her mysticism. You mentioned earlier she was a visionary mystic. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. Well, unlike Hildegard, as I mentioned before, her visions are not only very vivid, but they involve interaction, right? Like, you know, exchanging hearts with Christ, this mystical marriage, and conversations, conversations with God, to to get a, a good taste of what Catherine's conversations with God were like. Well, she she dictated some of these conversations, and they were written down. And this book has the title, The Dialogues, The Dialogues of Catherine of Siena, where uh, it's a constant exchange uh, between herself and God, in which Christ is the bridge or the link between God the Father and Catherine, and in the dialogue, Catherine, her, you know her side of the conversation. She becomes the human soul. You know, she abs- it's, gets abstracted. It's not just Catherine. This is the human soul, an abstraction, right? But very real. in Catherine, talking to God, and she has many uh, instructions uh, about how to live one's life, how to pray how to uh, behave if you are a monk or nun or a priest, especially the subject of obedience. But there's one item in the dialogue that is unique to Catherine. She has this concept of a spiritual cell, an inner cell. By cell, I mean not not like a a cell in your body, but a cell in a prison, right? Or a cell in a monastery. Because... Monks and nuns, their rooms are referred to as cells. And I'm going to quote from her now. And she says, build yourself a spiritual cell, which you can always take with you. That is the cell of self-knowledge. You will find there also the knowledge of God's goodness to you. There are really two cells in one. And if you live in one, you must also live in the other. Otherwise, the soul will either despair or be presumptuous. If you dwell in self-knowledge alone, you would despair. If you dwelt in the knowledge of God alone, you would be tempted to presumption. One must go with the other. One cell, she means. One cell must go with the other, and thus you will reach perfection. So, what is this knowledge? She tells you, (laughs) and I'm quoting again, This is something God says to her. So now this is God speaking. Do you know, daughter, who you are and who I am? If you know these two things, you have beatitude in your grasp. That's the ultimate happiness, beatitude. You are she who is not, and I am he who is. And this, although she is not, you know, she's not been trained in theology. She embarked on this life this mystical life at a very early age and didn't go to school. But this is is one of the central teachings of the deepest thinkers in Christian religion, our contingency, the fact that we depend entirely for our being on God. And in another place, here's what she had to say about this. You know, God is he who is. We are those who are not. She said, God is like the sea. In which fish swim." <laughs> I'm not quoting her directly. This is something I, I'm paraphrasing. That, you know, God is like the water in which fish swim. That's what our existence is like. We would not exist, could not exist, without God, in the same way fish cannot exist out of water. I suppose she could have also said, God is like the air we breathe, without which we can't live. And abstract, as all, as all of this sounds, and as deeply philosophical as it is, for her, this is absolutely essential for leading the correct kind of life on Earth. And for her, that correct life, you know, we haven't gotten to this yet, is being out there, being constantly involved, always doing good for others, and doing so in even the most extreme
0: circumstances. And one could almost say suffering as well. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, I came across something a f- couple weeks ago—a uh, writing from Saint Catherine talking about suffering and actually the joy of suffering, where she uh-huh. found joy in it, and it comes from the spiritual dialogue. But I'll read it. It's a quick little paragraph, and this is uh, Saint Catherine writing by reason of his generous efforts, never to deny God any type of sacrifice the soul overflows with joy after the fashion of Mm. St. Paul in the midst of its sufferings. It realizes very well that by means of those sufferings, it is purified of the stains of the flesh and the spirit that, for the glory of God, it had begun to be adorned in the ornaments of the spouse.
1: That's beautiful.
0: So there she's basically reveling in her suffering. At this point of the recording... Carlos lost his internet connection. However, he was able to call into the podcast so we could finish the episode. You may notice a difference in sound quality.
1: Yeah, that seems rather odd. Joy of suffering. But in fact, she did. Like all mystics, all Christian mystics, you know, bliss and pain are, they're not, I was going to say they're conjoined. But no, it's more than that. It's that you know, the distinctions are obliterated between things that we think are opposites and that this kind of overcoming of distinctions is, in fact, one of the benefits and signs of redemption. I've got another quote from the dialogue that I think speaks to this because it is not focused on her suffering, but rather on the connection there is between god's suffering and his mercy so here's catherine speaking out of mercy you have washed us in his blood that's christ's blood out of mercy you have wished to converse with creatures oh crazed with love it did not suffice for you to take flesh but you also wish to die oh mercy my heart drowns in thinking of you, for no matter where I turn to think, I find only mercy. Again, something that doesn't quite fit with our cult, our dominant culture, but that's Catherine. And that's, you know, she's not very unique in this. Other Christian mystics say very, very similar things that at the bottom of it all, or above it all, is just a mystery that you can't penetrate with linear reasoning. But it there's a lot of feeling here. Feelings are predominant over intellectual, rational discourse. But okay. all of this, um, you know, all of this might seem very abstract. But if one considers what her active life was like after age 21, very little of it will seem abstract.
0: <laughs> now, you mentioned earlier, before we got into her mysticism, about how her writings are filled with references to blood. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, it's not just the, the blood of Christ which affects salvation, but in her own life, you know, she tended to the sick in hospitals. She tended to plague victims. She tended to prisoners. And one of the things that she did was to accompany prisoners who had been sentenced to death to their deaths. And For instance, staying with them on the scaffold until the last moment, in the case of one young man, till the moment when he was beheaded. She caught the head in her arms and was completely covered in his blood. And once again, we have to return to this. The secular perspective of our culture is this this is just not right. Some people would say this is just not right. But she she was praying for this young man till the last minute, convincing him that, you know, if he had confessed his sins, he was forgiven and he was going straight to God and helped him have, if one could say it this way, a meaningful death. But she was completely covered in blood. And that was just not, it wasn't, it was more than just fine with her. It was this blood of this young man almost had a sacramental meaning for her. And it has everything to do with the passion of Christ to which, you know, on which she was very, very focused helping a convicted criminal. I can't remember what the young man's crime had been, that it was, it was judged to be a capital crime, but to do that and to tend to plague victims, help them as they're dying do all the nasty things that need to be done to people who are suffering from the plague or other diseases. It's not very clean and tidy. It's just the opposite. And of course, she would say that this is seeing Christ in the suffering of others, sort of the parable of the Good Samaritan taken to its extreme. She doesn't just take care of the poor and sick and hurting, but she takes on their pain. Also, she joins them in their suffering and tries to make it all redemptive. And in her own life, as you can imagine, you know, there were those who um, sometimes stood in her way, sometimes judged her as being wrong. And that's never easy. Makes her just super extraordinary. And the way in which she became very political. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that She became a great solver of disputes. She would be a great intermediary. And it wasn't just in her city, Siena. She became an intermediary between different Italian city-states, which in the 14th century were constantly fighting with each other. Because, you know, we have to keep in mind, the country of Italy didn't exist till the 19th century. Italy was like a mosaic of city-states and principalities, And they were often rivals and often fighting with each other. And she left Siena to go to other cities to solve disputes. And she was very effective from what Raymond Capua tells us and other sources, too, that she was a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. And uh, she also started writing letters to all sorts of people, some to common people, some to other uh, monastics, but also letters to important people, to rulers, dukes, counts, nobility, and even the Pope. And here's the most astounding of her worldly accomplishments, which kind of blends in with the spiritual accomplishment. Okay, so you have this 20-something woman in her 20s, and she's writing to people way above her in social class and important people who make important decisions and she starts to write to the Pope. Now, it must be mentioned, the Pope is not in Rome. Pope Gregory XI, to whom she writes, is living in Avignon, uh, which is is now in France, but was then independent from the kingdom of France. And why is he in Avignon? Because uh, a long string of popes have been there for the past 60 years. This is the period that was later given the name, the Babylonian Captivity of the Papacy, a reference to the 70 years that the ancient Jews spent in exile in Babylon. Why had the popes gone to Avignon? Well, that's a whole story that we don't, we don't really have time to cover, but the short version of the story is that Rome was, in 1318, became too unstable politically, Socially, and also health reasons, malaria. So the popes went up to Avignon, which was safer. And a whole series of popes lived there for basically, you know, if we count 20, 25 years as a generation, because people had children early in life then. Three generations. There's been no pope in Rome. And Catherine, in her conversations with God, came to the conclusion, easy to come to, this is wrong. No, the Pope belongs in Rome, and she began to write to to Gregory, and in her letters where she addresses him as Babbo, B A B B O, which is uh, an Italian equivalent of dad or daddy. I forget which Italian opera it is. Uh, it's a very famous song, "Oh mio babino caro," oh my dear dad, babino. That's the diminutive of Babo. But she called, she called the Pope Babo. She told him he was in the wrong. She told him she ha- he had to come back to Rome and that he was very wrong for being up in Avignon and not doing what the Pope should do, which is to reside in Rome. Now imagine this. I don't know of any other case where a nun writes to the Pope and tells him what to do. And the Pope not only puts up with her, but actually ends up returning to Rome. Now, whether Gregory XI returned to Rome simply because Catherine asked him to do so or told him to do so, that remains a matter for discussion. But he did exactly what she wanted him to do. But it gets tragic at this point because Gregory XI returns to Rome, 1377. Catherine is now... 32 years old shortly after returning to rome pope gregory dies and of course new pope has to be elected and the story gets very complicated and tragic after that because there's a mob in rome outside of where the election is being held the papal election and the mob is saying that the pope who is elected has to be italian an italian is elected but soon afterwards some of the french cardinals who had elected him say that the election is invalid because they were afraid of the mob and they elect one of their own as pope now all of a sudden you have two popes who have been elected by more or less the same group of cardinals and this is the beginning of the great schism or schism within the the western church within the catholic church where you have two rival popes, each claiming to be legitimate. And this begins in 1378 and will last till 1415. Terrible time in the history of the church and also very confusing time for all believers. Because just imagine, different nations supported one side or the other. So, for instance, France, of course, supported the Pope, the French Pope in Avignon. But England supported the Pope in Rome. Spain didn't quite exist yet; there were different kingdoms in Spain, but in I- Iberia, for the most part, they supported the Avignon Pope. Germany, oh, with so many different principalities, that was very messy, and so on and so forth. But, like, for instance, if you crossed the English Channel and went to France, you were automatically excommunicated by the Pope in Avignon. But if you went from France to England, you'd be excommunicated automatically by the Pope in Rome. Very confusing. Poor Catherine died as this was beginning to happen. She died in 1378, heartbroken, absolutely heartbroken, that the church had fallen apart. Had she lived longer, she would have seen how this just dragged on and dragged on.
0: So she died at a relatively young age. Yes,
1: 33 when she died. Uh, most, most people's lives kind of begin within their 30s. I mean, they're, they're very active life, their greatest accomplishments, you know, except for rock stars, you know, who can peak at 19 to, to 22. But we're talking about someone who didn't have any of the, th- let's say, certifications or certificates that were needed to do any of these things that she did, like, you know. Not just giving the Pope advice, but telling the Pope that he was wrong and that he needed to return to Rome. Here, here's a quote. Okay, this is this is her gumption, her audacity. She writes, Bible. So, let's say, Daddy, since Christ has given you authority and you have accepted it, you ought to be using the power and strength that is yours. If you don't intend to use it, it would be better and more to God's honor and the good of your soul, to resign. If I were in your place, I would be afraid of incurring divine judgment. Cursed be you, for time and power were entrusted to you, and you did not use them.
0: Those are pretty strong words for a nun to tell the vicar of Christ.
1: (laughs) Yes, especially the line, Cursed be you, and if I were you, if I were in your place, I'd be afraid of incurring divine judgment. Because she's basically telling him, you are going to face divine judgment for all these things. Are Because, you know, there was a lot of corruption in the church. And that's one of the things that upset her so much. The Avignon papacy, as it's known, acquired a reputation for corruption. Not that Rome didn't have corruption, too, that Roman popes didn't have the corruption. This is a terrible time period. But Gregory returns to Rome and then things get worse. That letter that I just read. Is from 1376, so shortly before Gregory returns to Rome.
0: And unfortunately, she passes away at a young age, and maybe fortunately, even though she did start to see the beginnings of everything falling apart within the church, she didn't get to see, I I dare to say, the mess that she Yeah. (laughs) That her suggestion created. Right,
1: although, you know, of course, the historians... That's what we do, we historians. We disagree with each other constantly in interpreting the past and finding causes for things. Did she cause this? I suppose in one way you could say, yes, she's partly responsible. But it wasn't predictable what was going to happen. You know, and, and I suppose you know, uh, just from a purely objective standpoint, when power becomes entrenched in any group of people, they tend not to give up that power. It's very, very difficult to convince people who have had power and who think they can hang on to that power to just willingly relinquish it. And that's what happened. The uh, French cardinals found a way of undoing the election and thought that they could get enough support from secular rulers to get their way. But it didn't turn out that way the support of secular rulers was divided just about evenly enough to keep this going till 1415. And I should add as a footnote that in 1409, a council was called in the Italian city of Pisa. The Council of Pisa, 1409, deposes the Roman Pope, deposes the Avignon Pope, and installs a new Pope. Well, surprise, the Roman Pope and the Avignon Pope Refused to resign. So now you've got three popes <laughs> all claiming to be the legitimate pope. So how is this solved? Well, let's make this a cliffhanger. We'll have to come back to this another time. It it ends up being resolved 1415, but not in a very easy way.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that was a very difficult time for the church, for believers, for the members of the church, for the cardinals, for priests, for everybody. I, I, I remember reading a while back ago regarding this how on how these some of these popes, and I don't remember exactly who which one it was, but they would use a tactic in order to get support from the rulers in different countries. It would, they would basically tell the rulers, you have to support me, or I'm going to tell all of your subjects that they're all going to hell unless you support me.
1: Oh, yeah, papal interdict. This is the weapon that popes wielded throughout the entire medieval period against secular rulers. Yes, uh, if you don't obey me, what I'm saying to you, then you and all your people are excommunicated. Which is why, you know, during this schism, if you cross from England to France or France to England, you were immediately excommunicated by the pope of that kingdom. And... It created many problems, and among those problems, in England, you end up with John Wycliffe basically leading a spiritual and ecclesiastic rebellion against the papacy, his followers known as the Lollards, Of course, they're pronounced to be heretics, but then following the ideas of John Wycliffe in Bohemia, which is present-day Czechia, John Huss carries out the same kind of protest. And both Wycliffe and Huss, their argument was, look, the ultimate authority in the Church is not the Pope. It's Christ himself. Wow. Well, they had followers, and they had plenty of followers, precisely because anyone who looked to the papacy saw nothing but disorder and corruption. So the Lollards were persecuted and wiped out in England. Not completely, experts say. Some of them went underground and then resurfaced during the Protestant Reformation.
0: I was going to say that sounds like the the beginnings, the the seeds yes. of the Protestant Reformation.
1: Yes. And it, in the history of the Protestant Reformation, written by Protestants, Wycliffe and Huss are always seen as forerunners or precursors, or even initiators of what would become the Protestant Reformation. They see them as as being on their side. And one of the arguments made by Wycliffe, also made by Huss, intended to clean up corruption in the church, was that any cleric who didn't live up to his vows and didn't fulfill his responsibilities could be removed from office and they said the same thing about secular rulers, too, by the way. These, these were pretty radical people. Yeah, any ruler that doesn't do his duty can be removed from office. Office is contingent on performance is the ba- basic message of their argument. You don't perform, out you go. So Catherine of, of Siena, of course, could not foresee Wycliffe and Huss arising out of this mess. But I suppose if you want to blame her for creating the great (laughs) schism, you can also indirectly blame poor Catherine. Of course, I I don't. (laughs) But I could see why someone would say, well, look what she did.
0: Yeah, I mean, they could try to blame her, but she was following her visions and she was following what she thought was right. And who could have foretold that this was going to create such a problem that basically continued uh, for Two hundred years after that, culminating in the in the Protestant Reformation. But going back to Saint Catherine, I wanted to ask: Did she have any contemporaries in terms of other mystics that she communicated with? You know,
1: I've never asked that question, and then nobody has asked that question of me. That's or, the reason
0: you have me. That's the reason I'm on the yes, show to ask you these yes. questions.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll have to look that up because. I know she wrote to many other monastics, but I'm not remembering any mention, any any of my reading about Catherine of Siena, that like, for instance, Hildegard and Bernard of Clairvaux, knowing each other through correspondence, that's everywhere if you read about Hilgard, Hildegard. But it doesn't pop up. So I will have to scratch a little more deeply on this and see what I find. But she did have an enormous impact on mystics who came after her, many of whom read That Life by Raymond of Capua, and it had a tremendous influence, especially on St. Teresa of Avila.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you, because she had a relatively short life, and sure, she did a lot of things in that short period of time and, and had a lot of accomplishments, but at the end of the day, it was a short Period of time, a a short, a small window where she was actually active, yet she is such an influential and well known mystic. Her name is everybody's heard of St. Catherine of Siena. Even before I started studying mysticism, I had heard of St. Catherine of Siena. I got married at the church, St. Catherine of Siena. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Have you found a reason why she, her, her short life was so impactful on on others and, and who she impacted?
1: Well, for starters, you know, anyone who makes a difference in the day-to-day life of cities, states, even nations, or, you know, an entire church, they're going to be remembered because she was such a problem solver, right? If in addition to this, you have someone who displays what, the church calls heroic virtue. And in our own day and age, if we can think of a parallel, someone who is not known for being a mystic per se, but St. Teresa of Calcutta, who established the order that commits itself to taking care of the poor and dispossessed all over the world, and who's been canonized as now St. Teresa, not to be confused with Teresa of Avila, of course. But anyway, everyone in our day and age knows of... St. Teresa, because she's a model of heroic virtue, of selflessness. Well, Catherine of Siena was all that. But in, in addition, you know, she left behind a dialogue. She left behind the letters, which are just incredible. And she also left behind prayers. And she ends up being declared a doctor of the church in 1970. She and Teresa of Avila were jointly at the same time and same ceremony proclaimed doctors of the church. The first two women, why is she a doctor of the church? It's because of her teachings on the meaning of suffering, the closeness that human beings can have to the divine, the need for humility, the need for selflessness. I suppose that she's a doctor of the church in what the church itself calls moral theology, but she's also a doctor of the Church when it comes to theology, to speaking about God, to figuring out the mysteries of God, the mysteries of redemption. And she's a mystical doctor, along with Teresa of Avila, who's all the same thing, both of these women. And it's no coincidence that they were both declared doctors of the Church together at the very same time.
0: Well, no one can argue that St. Catherine of Siena did not have an impact on on the church and on future generations to this day. She continues to do so. The example that she set and her writing still being popular and read by countless millions of people, I'm sure. Yeah, and
1: I'm surprised, you know, because um, some texts get translated once and then that translation keeps being published. But in her case, The Life of Catherine by Raymond of Capua, there are so many different editions. It's Just amazing. In English alone, I'm only you know I'm only thinking of English. But soon after the printing press was invented in 1450, Raymond Capua's Life of Catherine uh, was translated into many languages and was immensely popular. And you know, if a book keeps being reprinted, it's because it's selling. <laughs> Printers back away from any book that is known to have low sales figures. That's it. As someone who who has books that have not sold all that well and is still surprised that they haven't gone out of print (laughs) i know i know how publishers work so by worldly standards one can call her mystical texts a great triumph the dialogue too gets translated and becomes very popular devotional literature
0: well as all the other mystics we've talked about in past episodes saint catherine of siena does not disappoint an incredible woman And to me, it's just amazing in such a short period of time how influential she became uh, to this day. It's just utterly amazing to me that someone can have that kind of impact on people and and on the church.
1: Right. And it's something I always uh, try to remember to say when I'm teaching Catherine. But of course, most of my students are in their 20s. It doesn't have the same effect. You can also say it to older audiences. Just try to think: What did you accomplish by age thirty-three?
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. Holy smokes! I age didn't 30.
0: get. I didn't really get started till I was thirty-five.
1: <laughs> well, I'm not sure that I got started. You, even <laughs> well, you've done a, you,
0: You've done a lot, Carlos. You'll leave behind an incredible legacy as well.
1: Well. I was so messed up when I was 33, to be honest, right?
0: Oh, uh, who wasn't?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it was the early 80s. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, Catherine is unforgettable.
0: So how are you going to top this on the next episode? Who do you have for us?
1: Uh, how about another Catherine, also Italian, Catherine of Genoa, who lived in the 15th century, just before the Protestant Reformation, and in many ways, similar the Catherine of Siena, but of course she has different things to say. But this is also another mystic who uh, devoted her life to serving others. So two Catherines in a row.
0: Oh, the, we'll have the Catherine sisters. But before we go, do you have an update for us on your book?
1: Oh, my new book is out and ready for anyone to buy it who wants to, or or to go to the library and check it out. The title is "They Flew: A History of the Impossible." Is the subtitle because it is about impossible miracles that we've talked about, the physical phenomena of mysticism. The two phenomena I've focused on in this book are levitation and bilocation. And I mentioned Catherine briefly because she levitated. It's the only attention she gets in this book because, of course, it's focused on on that subject. But, yeah, it's out and ready for purchase. Yale University Press And thanks to some donors who contributed to the publication of this book, it's also not very expensive as far as book goes nowadays. It's only available in hardback, but it's only $35.
0: Well, we'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. So if any of our listeners want to get a copy of the book, you can click on the link and and get yourself a copy, and you know we're going to have to do a show about it.
1: Oh, sure. (laughs) I could talk about it endlessly, of course. So, yeah, sure, absolutely.
0: So we'll plan that uh, hopefully before the end of the year. We'll get an episode on They Flew.
1: Oh, oh, yes, yeah, definitely.
0: Well, another great episode, Carlos. I want to thank you for joining us. And until the next time, thank you all for listening to the Christian Mysticism Podcast. If you have any questions for Dr. Eyre, You'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast.